Welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, Reach Ireland's crime podcast for the Irish Daily Mirror and the Irish Daily Star. I'm Owen Murphy, news editor, standing in for Paul Healy, who's on leave. And today is our Week in Crime podcast, where we look back over crime stories of the past seven days. And today's episode is produced by Andre Skintian. Joining me to discuss everything that has happened over the past week is Michael O'Toole, our crime and defence editor. Hello, Mick. Owen, how's things? Very good. We've discussed Cork a lot over the last couple of weeks because there's been a lot of incidents down in Cork. And we'll start in Cork once again on the suspected murder of Michael Foley in McCroom on Tuesday. What happened there? Yeah, so it has. Been, it was upgraded. Uh, so we're recording this on Thursday. On Wednesday night, Garda issued a statement following the post-mortem by state pathologist Dr. Margot Bolster that was upgraded to murder. There was a bit of a delay. Uh, it was Thursday, Wednesday evening before the, the statement came through. Uh, we and other papers on Wednesday morning had said they were expecting to launch a murder inquiry, but there was a bit of a delay. Now, my understanding for the, the reason for the delay is that there were so many injuries that this poor man had suffered. So he really had suffered a serious assault, head, neck, face and body. So there were multiple injuries. Now, the belief is it may have been caused by a blunt instrument. In other words, he was beaten to death, you know, maybe an iron bar, a bat, something like that. But blunt trauma is very, very serious. So there is a murder investigation underway. Now, there's a couple of aspects to this. Firstly, Mr Foley, well-regarded man, he was originally from Clonakilty. He moved to McCroom in Cork a number of years ago. Now, he moved there after his brother. He has several brothers, but there's one brother called Timmy, who was a 44-year-old man who was living in McCroom. And in October 2018, he was stabbed to death. Uh, ironically, about 400 yards from where Michael's body was found on Wednesday. Now, Timmy's ex-wife, a lady called Rita O'Driscoll, was charged with her, his murder. She was convicted of his murder in 2020. She appealed it in 2022, but that case, uh, she lost her appeal. So she's in uh, prison serving a life sentence at the minute. But, but uh, Mary O'Driscoll, who uh, is uh, Michael and Timmy's sister, one of their, their siblings, was talking to Pascal Sheehy from RTE on, on Tuesday night. It was aired on Wednesday. Very, very moving. She was just basically saying, family is still traumatised by the murder of Timmy in 2018 and now they're having to go through it again. So I think at that stage it hadn't been confirmed as murder but the media ourselves are included were saying it was likely to be a murder. So really she was just saying that they were just hoping against hope that it wasn't a murder but she'd seen all the the reports about it. She did say that uh, Michael had uh, a heart uh, condition and she thought that may have been something to do with it. I think she was really hoping against hope that it wasn't murder, but unfortunately it was. So there's an investigation underway. A couple of interesting aspects to this. He was he was killed in his own house. We understand there was no sign of a break-in. So in cases like that, the belief is, firstly, that Michael let his killer in. And secondly, because he let them in, it's very likely that he knew them. He, he, mm. he knew the, the killer or killers. So in cases like this, it, it wasn't what you would, the Americans would call a home invasion. Burglary sort of burglary gone wrong. It was something happened. Did he was he talking with someone that he knew? Something like that. A row developed and the poor man got killed. So terrible end for Mr. Foley and more trauma for his wider family. Why was he killed? Do they have any idea why he was killed? It's very hard to tell. I, I think they're going for a personal row rather than a burglary or, you know, something like that. But look, you know, in cases like this. It's very rare that it's not someone they knew. 
Michael Foley himself, uh, you mentioned there was obviously two murders in the family, but Michael Foley, was he in any way known to the Garthi? Had he any convictions himself? He did. He's a bit of a tragic figure. He did. This sounds really serious. He had 104 convictions. And the last one was in McCroom. He was in Clonakilty Court in December. So just a couple of months before he died. But the court heard the vast majority of those convictions were you and I would call public order being drunk and disorderly so the poor man we know that he had a caseworker who was trying to help him and it was the caseworker who found him on Tuesday and there is a possibility that he may have lain dead for several days because I don't think neighbours had seen him so look he's a bit of a tragic figure he did have more than 100 convictions but they were all low level public order you know, that stem from his his problems. So, look, I think he was just yeah. a poor devil god. And his brother's murder five years ago, um, murdered by a female. That's always an unusual thing. Is it rare for women to kill their partners or exes? It, it, yes. The, to put it on its head for a moment, the vast majority of, uh, I'm just saying hello to our, our producer, Andre, who has arrived. The vast majority of women killed in their own homes, are killed by their partners. Now, this man was killed outside his own home and it was his ex-wife who was convicted of his murder. Now, she uh, tried to go for a self-defence that she had been abused herself. She'd been a victim of violence. The jury didn't, didn't buy that and she was convicted of murder, but it is extremely rare for a woman to be convicted of murdering their spouse, ex-spouse partner. There have been some cases where women have been charged with that, but they have been acqu- acquitted. So, uh, it, uh, you know, it, 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 I'm not going to say it was a turn up for the books, but it's very, very rare for a woman charged with that to be uh, convicted. Now, there have been other cases, but look, in, in the vast majority of cases, it's a man killing his or her ex, his, his, his ex-wife or spouse uh, in their own home. So it's, yeah. it's quite rare. Sounds unusual for the role reversal, all right. In a separate investigation in Cork, what's the latest on the investigation as to the death of Kieran Quilligan? His remains were found in Cork recently after he was missing for five months. What's the latest in that investigation? Yeah, so uh, as you know, his remains were found in the Whitegate area of East Cork last Monday, found by cadaver dogs. And as you say, he was last seen in Cork City, in an apartment in Cork City on the 1st of September last year. So there was a significant Garda investigation, both before, while he was a missing person, and after it was confirmed that he was murdered. Uh, We're slightly limited. Two men have appeared in court. Two men have been charged with his murder. So that uh, investigation has obviously progressed to a certain level. One case we're not limited on discussing is the one in England, which dominated headlines probably about a week ago now. There was a lot of focus in the UK um, over the past week on Brianna Jai and her murder. This is a 16-year-old transgender girl. She was stabbed 28 times in her head, neck and back with a hunting knife in February of last year. Her killers were only 15 at the time. And in the UK, they are normally not allowed to be named until they reach the age of 18. But the media did apply for an exemption to be made and they were allowed to be named when they were sentenced last week so their names are Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe what sort of sentences did they get uh, Mick? I think uh, Scarlett got 22 years I think she was seen as playing the bigger role in the murder and Eddie Ratcliffe got 20 years so they're they're significant sentences and I know we're going to come on to talk about sentencing but obviously the interesting factor is that they were named during their trial because there were 
we would call minors or juveniles in Ireland, they couldn't be named. But I note that the trial judge in her reasoning for naming them said that there was an exceptional public interest in that. Do you think that's valid? It's an interesting one. Like sometimes it's a it's an interesting one that in, in, in we never name anybody until they get to the age of eighteen, and then they're all of a sudden named. And is there a huge significant difference between somebody who's eighteen and somebody who's nineteen, or somebody who's seventeen and somebody who's nineteen? More more relevantly, um, I think given the gravity of this crime, I think it was right to name them. But the the argument has to be made about you know what about the rehabilitation. Um, but they were going to be named anyway when they got to 18 they're now 16 they were 15 when they committed the murder I think given how grave it was it I think it was justifiable to name them yeah we, we, I've spoken about this uh, probably with yourself but I know with Paul Healy on other pods when there are cases that I'm not working on I tend not to read them mm-hmm. Maybe it's for my own mental health or, you know, you know what I mean? Because we, we do this every day, Owen, and it's tough. And that was one case that I purposefully tried to stay away from. I found it extremely disturbing. Um, and I know my wife got very upset. She was looking at it and, you, you know, our spouses, they're normal people. They're, they don't do what we do. So, you know, you and I probably have more of awareness. So it's always very interesting to see what normal people view of these things. And, and she was upset and I think, I, I, I just... I could not get my head around the fact that, I mean, it's fair to say, I know that you probably read more about this than I did, Owen. They lured that girl to her death. I mean, that is, that's not an overestimate uh, statement, is it? They did. It was an absolutely horrendous case. Like, I got, got gripped by it only recently, and I was following a lot over the last week. There's a British radio station called LBC, which is kind of uh, Britain's equivalent to um, news talk, I suppose. Mm. Callers, they were very divided on whether she they should have been named. Some felt it was right, given how horrendous a crime it was and that it was premeditated. But a lot of people disagreed and they said that it would re- would harm their rehabilitation. Like, do you think there's a prospect of rehabilitation for children like that, 16 years of age, who commit a crime as bad as that? I do. I And look, I don't know anything about those people. But I do, I do believe in redemption and I do believe in rehabilitation. Now, it, it, the case reminded me of the anacrasial case. Now, I covered that case, so I know, a lot, I know a lot about that. And the boys were slightly younger when they murdered Anna in, in, on the Dublin uh, Kildare border a couple of years ago. That was, it just, the, the parallels were shocking in that, you know, Murders are murders are murders and, you know, you can have a spur of the moment murder where you decide to cause somebody harm. But that was literally, I mean, it was premeditated. It was planned. We've spoken about Graham Dwyer. Graham Dwyer planned that murder and the killers of Anna Crucial planned that. And by the sounds of things, the killers of poor Brianna Jay planned that as well. So it's very, very difficult, but it just, it brought that to me. Now, those boys will get out. I would like to believe that Somewhere along the line, they will have a dark night of the soul and, and they will realise what they did was wrong. And I, I, I do believe in rehabilitation and I do believe in redemption. But just Mr Justice Paul McDermott was the trial judge in the Anacrasial case. He said something has always struck me because you hear all these, you know, people going, look, prison has to be for rehabilitation. And, and that's grand. It does. I believe in that. But he said, and it struck me uh, when he was sentencing the, the boys, he said, there has to be an element of punishment here as well. So the boys have to be punished for what they did. And uh, Scarlett and Eddie, 
they have to be punished for what they did as well. But that doesn't mean that you cannot be rehabilitated. As I always say this, I remember years ago we did stories about prisoners in Mountjoy and everything having TVs in their cells, playstations, whatever. And I, I always say, let them have whatever they want because there is nothing like, and I've been in prison, There is nothing like being in prison and the door closing and your liberty taken away from you. That is a massive punishment in my mind. But just to get back to this, um, the the, the killers of Anacrusia will never be be named. And there was, because Mr. Justice McDermott specifically ruled that they can't be named when they turn 18 or ever. So they have that protection. I would fall on the side of, look, they're being punished. They may be rehabilitated and they were I mean, there is a there is a Children Act, which is why they can't be named in Ireland. If you're a child uh, charged with a serious offence or any offence, you cannot be named in Ireland. And I think the reason for that is that you you haven't grown on all of your faculties there, and you are a child, so you do mature. So I would hope that there would be rehabilitation for mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. child killers, yeah. even though it's very, very yeah. difficult. What about the case in England, though, in a normal case, like in, in the case of Brianna Jai, the media made an application to name them immediately, not before they reach 18. But in England, normally what would happen is when those children reach 18, they are then allowed to be named. Mm. We don't go down that route normally. Do you think we should? What about when, when they reach 18, naming them then? Well, you see, the offence... See, this is my point. I'm not a hang and flogging person. I, I, I'm not. Um, when they're... You know, they... Okay, they're, they're adults, but they committed the crime when they were children. And I'm afraid that has to be different because they're kids. They're not fully formed. They're not... You know, they can't fight for their country. They can't vote. They can't drive cars or whatever. So, you know, it's... If the child, if the crime is committed when they were kids, then surely there has to be there have to be special measures. So, I don't like giving opinions, but surely it makes sense that if they can't be named when they're a child because the offence was committed when they're a child, then surely that should continue. Yeah, like I, I spend a, a little bit of time looking into these cases in England because I go over to England uh, back and forth a little bit. And I was interested in this in that the female killer, Scarlett Jenkinson, you mentioned she mm. got 22 years. The boy got 20 years. The judge said the girl um, was the driving force behind the plan. I suppose that's unusual when you think of female male partnerships and murder cases in the past, especially those in England. We would have had Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Mm. Uh, we would have had Fred and Rose West. They were multiple serial killers uh, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. They, In those cases, it was Ian Brady, it was Fred West who were viewed as leading the charge in that murder plan. In this case, the judge saying the girl was the driving force behind behind the plan. That was interesting, wasn't it? I worry. Uh, is it per, is it the internet? Is it the availability of you can view whatever you want to view at the age of 13 or 14? You can just go on the internet and click a button and you've got whatever you want to see. Is that problematic? That, you know, you teenagers' minds, they're mush. My mind was mush when I was 13, 14 years. I'm sure your mind was mush. Mm. And mine still is. But we didn't have all these things at your finger fingertips and I just worry is that 
they, you can't, people can't tell me that those two were not desensitized by watching snuff videos or going on the dark web. I just think it's very worrying that that is available. Just in terms of sentences, uh, it's interesting when I talk about the sentences, Jenkinson getting 22 years um, and uh, the other, the, the guy um, Ratcliffe, Ratcliffe getting 20 years, that's before they can apply for parole. That is a minimum term they have to serve before they ap- could apply for parole. What would they get here, do you think? Oh, I know what they'd get. They'd get life. But yeah, but life th- and they can apply for parole after many years. 12. Yeah. Now, uh, it's slightly different for juveniles because, say, in the Crucial Killers, the judge said, you're going to do sentences life and you're going to do, I, I don't want to get it wrong, but say 10 years and come back in 10 years and it'll be reviewed. So that's separate, for, different to adult lifers. But the lifer... If you get life in Ireland, it's called an indeterminate sentence. So it's a whole, it's the whole life. And technically, when you get released from parole after how many years, you're still serving your life sentence, but you're on what is called license. You can be called, recalled at any time if you fuck up or if you do another crime. But uh, we were talking about this. At the moment, life sentence prisoners serve, it gets higher every year, but essentially about 20.5 years is the average at the moment for a lifer. So, because you, you, you may be in shock by that because we were talking beforehand. Mm. That's usually what it is, but there's no fixed time. In England, in Britain, it's called a tariff. So that 22 years and 20 years, they got a life sentence, but they, what they call a tariff is you will serve 22 years before you can apply for parole. Here, you get a life sentence. After 12 years, it used to be seven. After 12 years, you can apply for parole. Never happens. So on average, lifers here serve... 20 years that means some serve more that means some serve less but it's just it's yeah. just the differences now I think there are plans afoot to get, and the judges by the way the judges don't have any power to say I want you to serve X I think there are plans afoot to bring that in that the judges can but that's a way down the road so at the moment it's the judge says life and then it's up to the parole board and even the minister to say right you can get out of this so it's a slightly different system I don't know which is better because you know you and Scarlett 22 years she'll know like I keep my nose clean or whatever after 22 years I can I can make an effort to get out whereas in Ireland you're caught when you apply for parole you're turned down the first couple of times but you have to keep you have to show remorse and you have to keep uh, you know proving to the parole board that you are worthy of being released so it might be a better system here that they look at each case on its own rights and merits rather than well this person has 22 years and then they can walk do you know what I mean it's it's probably a more Uh, introspective system in Ireland yeah um, overall I think our system is probably easier we go easier on criminals over here in terms of life sentence prisoners than in the UK like the other thing they have over the UK is whole life orders now they don't dish out whole life orders to many people who commit murder but a whole life order means you will die in prison you will not get parole under any circumstances that was given out most recently to Wayne Cousins he Mm. murdered Sarah Everard very few people will need me to tell them what happened to Sarah Everard we don't have whole life orders here for the the particularly worst of criminals Um, do you think we'll go down that route I I think it's entirely 
entirely possible. I, I, I was just trying to think about this beforehand. I think that they are working on legislation for that. Did Lucy Letby get a whole life term in England as oh, well? Oh, she did indeed. Yeah. She did indeed. She was the baby killer. Yes. She murdered She murdered six babies and attempted to murder seven others. Two particularly egregious cases. Now, every murder is, egre- I think the Irish view is every murder is egregious. So every murder, it's a man, and I've been at countless cases where the judge says, the mandatory sentence is life. I am handing you that mandatory sentence now. So, Every murder in Ireland is of the same same scale. Now, we've spoken about this, say, for example, Mr. Uh, my favourite, Graham Dwyer. We've spoken about, I, I you know, think it's entirely possible he will die in prison. So it's up to the authorities to decide, is this man a threat or how long should he stay in for or has he expressed remorse? So we effectively do have whole life sentences, but it's on a case-by-case basis and it's really more ad hoc. Do you know, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that fella's never yeah. getting out. He's too dangerous. Yeah. Like sometimes I, I think that it's not the case um, that the only punishment you can get in life for a crime is is prison either. Like I remember I was at a case in Bournemouth, a few different cases in Bournemouth in South England when I went over there and there was a couple of serious assault cases and a couple of there was one sexual assault case um, in which a nurse, a male nurse, but he was struck off the register um, for this sexual assault. In other words, struck off the NHS register. You know, does it, a lot of lives are ruined even if you don't go to prison. Prison isn't the only uh, punishment you can get in life. Like to lose your career for uh, a crime that you commit when you're 20 or 22 is very significant as well. Yeah, and I mean, how many cases have there been when, you know, young fellas or young women appear in the district court in Dublin on a drugs charge or an assault charge or a public order and you, you hear their solicitor going, judge, he or she wants to go off to Australia or America and, you know, a record will scupper that. Now, interestingly, there's a thing called is it moral turpitude in America. You're not automatically barred, but you have to disclose any felonies or serious convictions and it's up to the immigration officer. So if you have a couple of assault charges, hold your hands up and say, look, I was a buckethead when I was ex. You know, they might let you in. People think it's an automatic, but you, you, but it, but convictions at an early age can have a hugely detrimental effect on your life. I suppose moving on, guard the numbers. They declined last year despite a major recruitment programme. The pace of retirements and resignations outstripping the number of new members graduating from the Garda College. We keep hearing about the need for more Garda, but we're getting fewer Garda. Did they drop by much last year, Mick? Yeah, they went down 135. So on the first, uh, 31st of December last year, there, there were thir- under, just under 14,000, 13,998. Now, at the start of the year, the figure was 14,133. Now, 770, 768 people, men and women, had been recruited to the Angarda Shiokana in that year, but I think it was about 388 passed out. Now, the problem is there were 169 resignations last year and there were 319 retirements, so that's more than the 388, so that's, that's a net deficit. So it is a problem. We know that there's currently... And we'll talk about the fitness. There's there's a guard recruitment effort underway at the minute. There are issues. There are plenty of issues. One is that there are other jobs out there that, you know, young ones can go and work in Intel or they can go and work in PayPal or Facebook, whatever, Meta. And they can only shed a lot of money. Uh, and I also know that there are, of all these resignations, there are plenty of, I know one lad, really, really good detective. He was involved in some high profile cases and he, Fair play to him. He left the guards a while ago and he almost doubled his salary. So if you're a guard, you've got 10 or 15 years experience, you've got massive paperwork, 
morale's at an all-time low, you're worried about GSOC all the time, you just, you don't want all this Ireland is full crowd giving you grief and filming you everywhere, you, every aspect of interaction you have with the community. You've got GSOC at you, you've got your bosses with paperwork, you've got everything, you've got a pain in it, hoop, as the dubs would mm. say, with all this stuff. Why wouldn't you go and get an easier job when you get more money and less yeah. stress? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think you, ha you have to, it's yeah. like journalism. Journalism is a hard gig, but we do it because we love it. We love it and it's in us. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people go, ah, I'm getting into PR, it's just easier life. No, I couldn't because I could not be a journalist, shall we say. But I can understand why a lot of guards go, hey, I've got a pain in my bollocks with this. Mm -hmm. I suppose the difficulty the government has there is if they try to raise the price or raise the salaries of Gardaí, they also have to raise the salaries of teachers and nurses and doctors and everybody else. Like, uh, is that one of the big factors pay, do you think, that's leading to a lot of these people quitting? Or is it things like burnout and stress and assaults and all that? All of the above. I know lads who are snowed under with paperwork. There's a new system called IMS, Investigative Management System, and you have to put everything on the computer. If you interview five people, you have to put five different things up on the computer, and it's a huge amount of paperwork, even for relatively minor things. They're really, really given out about it. Been a couple of pilot cases. It's going to go throughout the whole country this year. There's that, you know, look, accountability is great. Absolutely no problem, but there are, for every action... Uh, there is a reaction. And for all these actions, which are well-meaning, Gardaí are on the other side feeling burned out, no morale, unappreciated. They can't live in their station near where they're based. So their guards in Dublin are com commuting from Leash and Drogheda and Dundalk and Kildare and Gorey and, you know, all around the place. They can't live where they are. It's just, uh, we speak to a lot of guards and guards are like journalists. We do love giving out. But you can just tell over the last year there's an awful lot of resigned anger about what they're going through. And I will not be surprised. There have already been 17. There, there's a bulletin that comes out every fortnight within the guards. And in the first so the, the first two bulletins this year for January, 17 guards retired already. Now, by my reckoning, that will bring us over to 200 for the whole year, which will be a record. It was 169 last year. So, look, people are joining but people are leaving and I think that needs to be addressed. And one of the issues is their pensions. Pensions were from 2012 are really, really bad compared to older members who have pretty decent pensions. So there, are, there is a myriad, there are myriad reasons why guards are leaving. There are myriad reasons why yeah. people are joining as well, let's be fair. Yeah, but there's more people leaving than joining. So that's a big problem. So I suppose there's two obvious things that they could do to rectify that. Number one is get more Gardaí into the force. That would relieve, relieve some stress and burnout on some of the existing members. And the other issue, I presume, is pay. Are they the, the two issues that the Garda Representative Association or the AGSI would like to see addressed? Definitely, yes. I don't think a guard would ever turn down a pay rise. Neither would I, neither would you. That's no problem. But yeah, definitely numbers. So say, I mean, I know that the depot will say, look, you know, there's 14,000. I said it's probably 14,000 now, but that'll come out. But if there has been an increase, you have to remember that there have been, has been an increase in what they call specialist units or national units, NBCI, DOCB, all the alphabet soup. Now, those guards who are appointed detectives to those units have to come from what's called a regular or response officers, as they're called in England. So if you're taking Robin from Peter to pay Paul, it's grand. You have to have things like the protective services to go after child sex abuse images and that sort of stuff. But they're coming from the regular, so there's a shortfall on the regular. So, you know, there's only a finite amount of resources, and the more units there are, the fewer there are on the front line, and that's causing difficulties.
Yeah, we spoke about Cork earlier on, just moving on to nearby Kerry. You had a a good story there on Wednesday about a man being extradited from England to face charges over the arson deaths of a father and his young daughter. Uh, There was a court appearance today, which is Thursday, I believe. Yes, so there's a man called Philip Griffin, no fixed aboard, 37-year-old, and he has been charged with the murder of Nadine who was five, and her father, Anthony O'Brien, who was 30. Now, they both died in a house fire in Tralee, County Kerry, in May 2012. Now, there has been a long-running Garda investigation. That man appeared in court today, and the court heard that he was extradited from England. He was arrested by a Garda detective sergeant from Kerry at Dublin Airport uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday night, I believe, and he had nothing to say when the charges were put to him. Now, you'll know this, one when you're charged with murder, the district court, which is where he appeared, does not have the power to ha- deal with matters of bail. So Mr Griffin has been remanded in custody and he'll be back in Tralee Court on Wednesday. Uh, uh, we do know that uh, Anthony effectively died a hero. He rescued his partner, Kelly, got her out of the house, went back in to save Nadine and they were both over- overcome by fumes and they were found in each other's arms so he he died trying to save her tragic case but a man is now before the courts just moving back to kind of what we said about the Gardaí and trying to get more members into the Gardaí to join the Gardaí you have to pass this fitness test now our colleague Danny Deval was among the journalists who did the test in Temple Bore, Temple Moor on Tuesday. He didn't pass. Uh, another journalist argued it was too easy, however. Like, wh- what do you think? Is the test too hard? Is the test too easy? I, I, I saw that press release and I was going, oh, Christ, they're going to get me to do that because it was basically an invitation for uh, newspaper outlets and media outlets to send uh, guinea pigs, I suppose, to Temple Moor to do the fitness test. And I thought, oh, Christ, they're going to send, the desk is going to send me. Then I realised, thank God, I'm too old, I'm 53. The limit, they've hmm. raised the limit up to 50. So I, I, I escaped that one. Look, uh, you need a certain level of fitness to be a guard. And they, they, I mean, I think the commissioner did answer this, or actually it was the minister. You know, the first couple of years, if you're, if you're 50 or 49 or when you join, the first couple of years, you're going to be on the regular. So that will mean you're rolling around the floor with some fella outside a pub, you're doing a food chase, or you're helping a granny across the road. It's a tremendously varied job. And you do need to have a certain level of okay. physicality to get in. I mean, that's... Yeah, that, I was, I'm interested in that because I was trying to think to myself about that. Like, are they involved in many foot chases? Do they have to overcome people resisting arrest? Is, it, is there still that level of physicality? Because obviously, if you do have to have a foot chase and chase after some, some man who's after robbing a, a shop or you have to try to uh, arrest him after he's trying to resist arrest, you will need a certain amount of strength and fitness. But are those sort of... Uh, occurrences still happening those sort of foot chases and resisting arrest yeah they happen every day and if you go to any town or village on a Saturday or a Friday night you will see guards they might say having a shamozzle now it's not a fist fight but you know there's some drunken yahoos that they're trying to contain Mm. and and you do need a certain strength because you will things can become physical very very quickly in the guards and it can take half a second and you never know so you, you do need of course, you do need a certain robustness. I saw, I did see the other jur- the other fellow, the journalist, saying it was too easy. I, I, was he an indica- I, I know he was uh, he was a very keen fitness person. I don't know was he involved in some football? You know, he had a very good level of fitness. He did, yeah. Uh, for played him, um, uh, and Danny didn't pass. The other fellow did. Look, horses, of course, but you do need a certain standard. It's clear that you do need 
there are food chases, there are shamazalas, you do get into rows and stuff, so you do need a certain level of fitness, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was Tuesday. On Monday, you went to Kilkenny um, for this road safety operation for the St. Bridget's Bank Holiday weekend. You got a great story after only a few minutes there, I believe. Yeah, um, so it was... There obviously there have been a, a number of tragedies. We think that the three poor people, the two men and women killed in Carlo last week. So coincidentally, it was the roads policing unit for Carlo, Kilkenny and Waterford who were, we were shadowing for an hour. They were doing a mandatory test checkpoints. Some of those officers were the first, were amongst the first responders to that crisis because they're the roads unit for Carlo as well. So I, I, I felt for them, you know, it's just shows the nature of the job. One minute you're, dealing with Molly Cottle, journalists like us, and then the next year had a, a real tragedy. But they're lovely people. Anyway, so it was, it was uh, a mandatory checkpoints. In other words, normally guards have to form an opinion that you're over the limit before they test you. Here, they don't. So they did it for an hour. They did 55 drivers, men and women. And the fir- I think it was the first person who they stopped was a, a driver who failed at the roadside. So what happened is they're then arrested. They were brought to Kilkenny Garda Station where they have what's called an intoxiliser, which is quite a sophisticated breath test machine. At the roadside, it just gives you, you've probably seen it, green or orange, or, you know, you pass or feel. You go to the intoxiliser and it gives you a reading. So how many micrograms of alcohol, whatever the limit is. And it tells you that you feel and here's your reading. So he was brought back and we learned later that he did feel. But I suppose... The 54 other people that were stopped, they all passed. And that's probably a good thing. And, and Paul Donna, who was the inspector there, was saying, look, we're not necessarily here to arrest people. We're here to make sure that people aren't drink driving and aren't over the limit. Now, it was in the morning. And what was interesting was he always, he was saying that there is a serious issue with people. You think it's people driving home after a night out over the limit. One of the real big issues is people the next day who think they're okay to drive. And look, I, I don't know what that man's circumstances, but he was arrested in the morning. So he was obviously over the limit. And he said it's a very, very significant issue. And he did give advice. He said, you know your body better than anybody else. So if you're waking up the next morning, you haven't had enough sleep, you haven't had a proper feed, uh, you will know you've got a headache. You're probably a wee bit lightheaded. It's up to you to know your body. And if in doubt, just stay in the hotel or stay there for a couple of hours and sleep it off. And of course, this comes on the backdrop of a serious spike in road deaths. I know we had another uh, multiple fatality in Carlo last week. Three young people tragically lost their lives. We don't know what the factors were in that particular case. The trend, though, is very worrying. 188 people lost their lives on our roads last year. That's a 21% increase on 155 in 2022 and a further 20 have died in car crashes this year. So that we're only five weeks into the, the year and we've already had 20 uh, people dying i suppose it is a bad streak um is garda enforcement significant is that what they're trying to do is garda enforcement the only way to try and get this under control so there used to be called the garda traffic corps it's now called the roads policing unit and i don't have the figures but i do know that that number has reduced and it did reduce dramatically over the last couple of years they had they, they say they are building them up i'll just give an interesting statistic inspector donahue was telling us that that weekend they will have, in, in, in those three, in that Kilkenny district alone, there'll be something like 70, check, there will have been something like 70 checkpoints. And he started giving off statistics that every unit, effectively throughout the country, but definitely in the county, is expected to do two of these checkpoints a day. That's normal policing, ordinary policing, but the roads policing could do five or six in a okay. day. So I, I thought 75 was quite a lot for that 
one division district for the, the whole weekend and that's replicated replicated nationally but I suppose the the roads network is so big because people will say I drive everywhere and I never see guards it happens but I suppose there's so many roads and there's so many times and so many bar- variables that people don't see them but I think there is a perception that there aren't as many guards doing police roads policing as there were before of course, personal responsibility is also an issue. We can't all be just expecting Gardaí to keep an eye on us. We all, all have to take personal responsibility as we go driving. That's I'm it. not minimising how significant the problem is at the moment, but I looked back over statistics from many, many years ago, and the problem is not as significant as then. It looks like Atlanta previous years shows 640 people died on our roads in 1972. That compares to 188 last year for interest, and 368 in 2000. So we are nowhere near as bad as those figures. When you started out in journalism, whatever it was, 30 or so years ago, uh, were crashes much more frequent? Were these sort of tragedies much more frequent? It's very interesting because uh, we cover a lot of road crashes and we we highlight them. And I wonder, has there been a a change in the media? Because you asked me this and I actually had to... So I started in 94. Now... There was a conflict going on when I started. I started in Belfast, so the, the troubles were on. So the, you know, and there were murders. I mean, gun murders every week, and it was you know it was really bad. But my sense is, I don't really recall covering any road deaths in the first maybe eight or ten years of my career. And you know, I'll have to look back to see did they get that much coverage? Because like you know, what was it? Uh, Six hundred and many. 640 in 1972 that's more than that's practically two more than two a day isn't it almost two a day yeah. um, I wonder were there just so many that they didn't have that shock factor I know that in the, in the star in the mirror we do every road death and we try to highlight every road death and maybe that's maybe maybe journalism is helping to reduce it but I, I, I just got the sense and I'll have to speak to real old timers but I don't think they were really covered that much yeah, I'd say. Okay. And I presume factors that would have saw them decrease over the years are things like the road network, I'm sure, improved a lot. We have more motorways, we have less poor quality roads, we have less of a cultural acceptance towards drink driving. I think that's obviously an issue as well. I think n- nowadays we all wear seatbelts. Nearly all of us wear seatbelts anyway. We still do have some people issued with penalty points for not wearing seatbelts, but it's much more culturally acceptable now to wear a seatbelt than it was in the 1970s. So I think there's a few factors that have led to that decrease. So hopefully we'll bring it back to something like it was around 2006. Yeah, but I, I don't know about you, but there are nine people in my family. Mother and father are dead, God love them, but seven kids. Okay, So in the 70s and 80s, I clearly remember, and I think most people in my generation will remember this, there would be nine of us in a car and it wouldn't have been an SUV or a people carrier. It would have been, I don't know, a Ford Fiesta or a Vauxhall Viva. I remember we had a Vauxhall Viva, right? But I remember we had uh, an estate, a Nissan, that's an, a Datsun estate, right? And I remember me and my twin, and my twin, and my twin brother and my next youngest brother, we'd be sitting in the back of the estate looking out, giving people the fingers. No such thing as seatbelts. We're all piled in. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that I think that has changed. And also the NCT. That has improved the quality of cars as well. But you know what I mean? That we were, we were, everybody was crammed into cars. 
Oh, yeah, I was the exact same. I'm one of nine children. And um, so there's my mother and father. So there was 11 of us. There would have been 11 of us in a car and it wouldn't have been very big when we were growing up either. And I remember sitting in the boot and you'd never dream of putting a, a child in the boot now. And my mother would probably have one baby on each lap in the yeah. front in the, in the passenger seat and it's completely not done now we never had any crashes and we were all very safe on the roads but it, ha- it has changed an awful lot from that perspective and did when you were in the boot what, going backwards did you flick the finger at fingers at uh uh, pedestrians you would say we did I don't think I was as bad as you Mick I must have been better behaved ah, okay. myself and my sister ah, it's yeah, a myself and thing. my sister in the boot of the hatchback car do you know what it was the best place to sit, sit because you'd have plenty of room yeah yeah but I tell my kids about this and they're they're absolutely horrified you sat in a boot three of you with no seat but they can't believe it it's like child cruelty but that's yeah. that's what Ireland was like in the yeah. 70s and 80s um, just moving on to Graeme Dwyer, I know there are some murderers in Ireland that people will immediately know. One of those is Graeme Dwyer. Uh, he killed vulnerable childcare worker Elaine O'Hara back in 2012. He's serving a life sentence for her murder. This week it emerged Dwyer has launched a legal action. It's against the Irish Prison Service. This is separate from the appeal against his murder conviction that he is also launching. This uh, appeal, this uh, legal action against the Irish Prison Service from his jail cell. What is he alleging in that case? He's alleging a breach of his GDPR rights. Now, details are very, very scant, but the the belief would be, uh, how can I put this? He's not overly happy about his details appearing in the media. Um, I know he's not because he, anyway, I know he's not. And I know that he he doesn't like journalists. He really, really doesn't like journalists. Um, so my understanding and the belief would be that he is fucked off about all the details about it. I mean we've, we've, we've all done stories about him being assaulted in prison you know you know various things and I think it is basically he's going that his GDPR rights and his privacy rights uh, have been breached so it'll be interesting to see how that goes can the prison service legislate for somebody talking to and we're in source protection here but can they make sure that somebody doesn't tell me or Pat O'Connell in the Sunday world or Paul Healy or anybody things. And should they be held accountable if things slip out? So it's an interesting point. So he did set a precedent when he took the the government or the state to court over access to his mobile phone data in 2017, 2018, after his conviction. And that changed things massively and he won there so he might win this and there might be a a, a, a massive well there's always investigations but there might be difficulties for information coming out again that's his right but this coincides with his supreme court appeal against his murder conviction which was handed down in 2015 we're expect that could be happen that was that appeal could happen tomorrow it could happen next week it won't be too far away i would suspect yeah we can't not touch on this uh, i think it was michael martin the foreign affairs minister and the tarnish that describing it as a campaign of criminality Gardy have launched mm. a Another investigation, yet another arson attack on a site um, that was uh, planned or there were unfounded rumours it was earmarked for asylum seekers. This is a trend of late. There have been 18 cases of arson attacks on centres that were either rumoured to be accommodating asylum seekers or set to accommodate asylum seekers. Um, What have the latest incidents uh, been, uh, Mick? Yeah, so you were right. We were working this out yesterday that, that it was 18. It was actually 19 because we didn't realise that this latest attack was in a house, a dormer bungalow in Lakeslip on the Selbridge Road in Lakeslip on Wednesday morning. It was burned out. But we only found out 
afterwards that it had also been attacked a week earlier on the 30th of January. So that was two attacks. Now, there's a couple of interesting aspects about this. That house, that area, the guards would call it uh, passing attention. So there were patrols there every day going up and checking everything was fine. Despite that, whoever did it was brazen enough to go and attack it despite the, the possibility of being surprised by Guardi because they were doing regular patrols more than every day. So every tour would have been up and down there to check. So that's quite brazen and quite worrying. And then the other aspect is there had been protests there. We know that leaflets were set out and other sort of stuff. And the guards engaged with protesters and said, look, it's not true. Asylum seekers are not coming here. And Georgina Gray, who's the superintendent in Lakeslip, effectively said they chose not to believe us. So there's a couple of really worrying aspects about that. The people are presented with the truth and people don't believe it. Yeah, I know the government has been trying to, like obviously there's about 200 different centres around the country that now accommodate asylum seekers and the government would say that it's not possible to provide 24-hour security at each of those to try to prevent uh, arson attacks like these. And as well as that, to try to solve them, I presume, Mick, what you're talking about is you're talking about people in some cases coming along in the dead of night uh, to uh, to set fire to some sort of centre. They're not the easiest things for the Gardaí to solve and that's probably reflected in the amount of arrests or how few arrests they've made to date? They're difficult to solve and it also takes time for them to solve. So if you look at the ship right, that was at the end of December and it's only really today, the 8th of February, that they have started making arrests. Now I know, I've been following this. They were scarred and you know, even if you think to the investigation into the Dublin riots, 20,000 hours of CCTV, they all have to be gone through. There will be CCTV here. There is CCTV in relation to the shipwright. And you, you can't just go, right, that's your man. You have to build up a picture and you have to make it forensic and it has to be proofs and everything. So they are difficult and time-consuming investigations. But, you know, I think within the next couple of months there will be more arrests and there will be prosecutions. The ball is rolling, but sometimes... By its very nature, it is quite slow. Yeah, it's interesting that two years into the war, we're now getting, uh, two years into the Ukraine war, we're now getting kind of 19 arson attacks in the space of a month or whatever it is. And there were, it wasn't the, the case for the first two years. It's really only mm. manifested itself as a significant problem over the last while. I think guards are very worried about these attacks. It Look, that last one, the one uh, uh, in, in Lake Slip, it was at half one in the morning. You know, can guards be there 24 hours a day? They have to do other things in Lake Slip. You know, they, they probably don't have the resources to station a member there 24-7. And, you know, it, they just have to go and make sure that there's nobody there. There's no guards or security guards there. So it's very, very difficult to combat. And very I would say it's very, very difficult to investigate. So, but they are they are worried about the, there has been a rash of them in the last couple of months, definitely. Very good. I think we'll leave it at that, Mick. We've covered. Can I just? Can I just? You I can, just. I forgot to mention just one thing, uh, just in relation to the Garda fitness test. We have to pay tribute to the great Sean McShawn in the Garda press office. Mm-hmm. He was. He's fifty-two, a year younger than me, and he won it. He was all these young journalists who were My speeding God. away. It was the beep test, and Sean beat everybody else. But that's no surprise. When I heard he was there, I laughed because he's a marathon runner. He's a fantastic marathon runner. So he did the maximum in the beep test. Nobody else could come near him. I was laughing. I was thinking of some poor guy or a criminal, you know, they're out in the beat and, and Sean's there thinking, oh, I can outrun this fellow. He's a guard. That he would run for hours and hours and hours. He's a, he's a bit of a machine. So fair play to Sean. Fair play to him. 52 years of age and beating all those journalists in their 20s in some cases. So that's good going. Mick, we'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening to Shattered Lives, Irish Daily Star and the Irish Mirror's Crime Podcast. 
Thanks, Owen. Thanks, everybody.